Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. (laughs) Or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. Welcome, listeners, to the 75th episode of Movie Oubliette, the equator-spanning podcast for forgotten fantastical films, with me, Conrad, getting a vaccine and a haircut in Cambridge, UK. Mm. And me, Dan, going camping for the first time since 2019 with my dog in Melbourne, Australia. (laughs) We focus on sci-fi, fantasy and horror movies because we love whimsical architecture, mysterious aquatic creatures and robots getting their heads blown clean off. Mm. Dan, how are you? (laughs) All about that whimsy, right? The more whimsy, the better. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm good. I'm good. How are you, Conrad? Well, I'm feeling a lot more positive, yes, because... I can get my hair shortened <laughs> yes. and I can get inoculated against, uh, yes, de- potentially deadly disease. So I'm feeling brighter, the sun's mm-hmm. out, mm-hmm. weather's getting warmer. I sold my house. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So I might be moving soon if everything goes okay. So yeah, lots of lots of excitement here. And you went camping. I went camping, yes, over the long Easter weekend. Uh, oh. And yeah, it was nice, nice relaxing. First time with our dog, who is still very young and woolly, <laughs> so walks were uh, a challenge. Uh, <laughs> he wanted to sniff everything, Aww. but uh, yeah, he was he was surprisingly good in the tent, and it was a it was a good long weekend. Okay, good to get out of the city. Yeah, I'm sure it was actually. I actually saw my brother over Easter, so I was able oh, to yes. give him my Christmas presents. Christmas and Easter. Christmas and Easter <laughs> in the garden because we're we're still not allowed to have people in our houses at the moment. But yeah, all oh, right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> What a world we live in. Good presents, though. <laughs> yeah, good presents. But, I mean, they genuinely were surprises because none of us can remember what we said we wanted. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Okay, talking about surprises, anything in the mailbag today, Conrad? Well, we gained some new patrons, which is wonderful. Very excited. Yay. To welcome aboard Brian DeFrancesco, Timothy Hayes, Retro Blasting. Thank you, Michael French. Whoa, Michael. <laughs> and none other than Catherine Mary Stewart. <laughs> so, no. Yes, we are now sponsored by Catherine Mary Stewart, which is really exciting. <laughs> wow. She's probably listening to that, all that bonus stuff yeah. we posted like two years ago. Of her, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, bless her. It's really kind of her. So, yes, thank you. Welcome aboard. I hope you enjoy all the bonus materials and voting. And uh, if anybody else out there would like to join in the fun, please do. Become a patron. We also heard from Chad Rommel on Outland. He said, love this film. The lived-in grubby tech is so convincingly utilitarian that it feels real. Deserves a Criterion release. Oh, yes. Could do. Or maybe a screen factory. That would be good. Yes. We also heard from Chris Henschel about Outland. Great movie. Saw it in the theatre as a kid with my dad. Oh. And those helmets are basically as practical as the similar ones in Alien. Got to uh, see those actors' faces, though. <laughs> you do. That's what's important. Who cares about their comfort? <laughs> yeah. Even underwater, where the pressure's ridiculous and it's completely stupid to mm. have big face plates like that. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Mark D with a C said, thought this was a really good film that's overlooked. Connery was great. Mm, Yeah, definitely. And also we heard from a surge of cold crash pictures. Oh, hello, Surge. (laughs) Hello, Surge. On Coherence. And he said, Coherence is such a fun little puzzle box of a movie. No joke. I watched it once, then watched it again the very next day Ah. to relive the experience, knowing what happens in the end. Oh, wow. Ah. Fun experiment. For once, he likes the film that that we we enjoyed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
He says, such a great example of super high concept, super low budget filmmaking. I probably never would have heard about it if not for Movie Oubliette. So, ah, there you go. the ultimate compliment. Indeed. We fulfilled our mission because that's why we are here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, it what is. are we going to be exposing to the world today, Conrad? Well, let me just amble on over to this Oubliette and find out. Oh! Right, I just dropped myself down. Oh, it's all wet in here. Again? That plumbing. Oh, what's that? Oh no, there's something in here with me. I'm grabbing the film and coming back. Okay. Look, we're being attacked by a crossword puzzle. So what do we have today? So today we have the 1992 American fantasy comedy film Toys, directed by Barry Levinson co-written by Levinson and Valerie Curtin and starring Robin Williams, Michael Gambon, Joan Cusack, Robin Wright, LL Cool J and Jamie Foxx in his feature film Uh, debut. (laughs) Right? It's pretty amazing. Sounds like a hit. It does, doesn't it? And it deals with an eccentric toy maker, Kenneth Zevo, who discovers he doesn't have long to live, so he leaves his whimsically gaudy factory to his military brother, Leland, rather than his devoted but immature children, Leslie and Alsatia. General Leland and his camouflage-obsessed son, Patrick, quickly enforce a repressive regime on the once-happy workers and begin developing toys that could be used as war machines controlled by gaming-addicted children. Will Leslie, his manic pixie sister and his manic pixie girlfriend, Gwen, be able to expose the general and defeat his mechanical army to restore joy and innocence to the Zevo legacy? And will they be able to do it in time for the next office Christmas party? Find out. (laughs) Right. And we will be joined by a special guest today as well to help us through this strange... Strange land. <laughs> Can't wait. Can't wait, yes. <laughs> After the break. Our special guest today is a writer, producer and cultural critic and the creator of the Pop Culture Detective Agency, a series of mind-blowingly insightful video essays on intersections between politics, representations of masculinity and popular entertainment. We are very excited to welcome the one and only Jonathan McIntosh. Hello! Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. It's thank very you. exciting to have you here. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, all things considered, you know. Good, good. Have you been beavering away on lots of new essays in lockdown? I have a lot of ideas and um, a lot of notes and not a lot of finished products. Right. <laughs> I am a huge fan of your videos. I find that I've learnt so much. I feel educated every time I watch them. Um, Thank you. The sexual assault of men played for laughs, the abduction as romance, born sexy yesterday, Mm. and the one that I I share constantly and the first one I ever saw was the adorable misogyny of the Big Bang Theory. Mm. It confirms the fact why I don't like that show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm I'm really glad that that you found them somewhat insightful. Uh, They do take an enormous amount of work. means I have to watch. Like, I watched every episode of The Big Bang Theory twice. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Um, And I took detailed notes. There's 10 seasons. It's a lot of garbage to wade through. Yeah. So I'm I'm happy that it's uh, useful. Yeah. Sometimes you make me realize why it is that I'm troubled by something, because that most recent series of Stranger Things, I thought something about this is really bothering me. And then you did your piece on the belligerent romance. And I thought, aha, that's what it is that's bugging me. Yeah, I mean, I am sort of blessed and cursed with a with an amazing memory for media. And so, you know, all the stuff that I've seen, TV shows and movies, I, I remember them <laughs> in some detail. And so I can go back and say, oh, that's a reference to Cheers. And then that reminds me of, you know, these four other things. And, you know, it, mm. when I remember, I mostly remember correctly. Although sometimes I go back and watch something and go, oh, I didn't remember that quite right. right. Um, but <laughs> Uh, you know, there's there's no shortage of examples of the things that I talk about. So I, you know, I find a pattern. Mm. There's usually dozens, if not hundreds, of examples that I can pick from. Yeah, right. Well, something.
thing that you've pulled out of your memory for us today <laughs> is Toys, the 1992 American fantasy comedy film directed by Barry Levinson. It quite famously sank without a trace upon release, much overshadowed by another Robin Williams vehicle, although he didn't intend it to be a vehicle. We'll talk about that. Mm -hmm. Disney's Aladdin. How did you first come across this movie and uh, why did you pick it for us to talk about today? Uh, yeah, it is a very weird movie for a whole bunch of reasons that I'm sure we're going to talk about. I was uh, like 13, I think, when I first saw it. I was in uh, an art magnet high school. And so, you know, it's it's very – the movie is very heavily influenced by the surrealists, uh, especially Magritte, the Belgian painter. Mm. Um, and so I was drawn to it for those reasons. It sort of has this whimsical, surreal quality to it. And I even had a poster on my wall <laughs> as, as a kid, mostly because I really liked the poster, which is inspired by Magritte, where the, mm. the, the guy is wearing a bowler hat and there's a hole in the hat and you can see through it. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'd not seen this before. Had you, Dan? No. No, I'm a massive, massive Robin Williams fan. Right. He was my favorite actor growing up as a kid. I, I watched everything. But no, I've never seen this movie. Watching it now, it's very confusing. It is really hard to categorize as a film because you can say it's fantasy, but it's not fantasy. And it's almost edging on like magical realism in its approach to showing whatever it is that it is. <laughs> what was your take on that, Jonathan, like watching it now as compared to when, when you'd seen it as a kid? Yeah, so I hadn't, you know, I hadn't seen this movie in many, many years, probably since it came out, right? So, you know, watching it again, it, it was amazing to me how much I remembered. I mean, I remembered like quoting the lines to my friends in school, you know, the, <laughs> uh -huh. LL Cool J is one of the characters mm. in the movie. Um, and he's, he's, he's very good. And he plays a sort of military guy. And um, there's a scene where he's eating uh, in the cafeteria with Joan Cusack's character. Mm -hmm. And he hates that his food is touching. And he keeps saying, I'm a military man. I want a military meal. I don't want my peas invading my mashed potatoes, you know. And I, we just loved that as a kid. I don't know why. And so we would constantly, like, repeat those lines, uh, me and my friends. Um, and I was surprised at how much I, you know, how, how familiar this movie seemed to me. Yeah. Um, even though I haven't seen it for almost 30 years. Wow. Yeah. I mean, does it make sense as a movie now? As an adult. Uh, does it make sense? Um, it's very weird. Mm. It's very sort of tonally disjointed almost. Like it, it feels like it's not sure what it is. Mm. But it's very confident about that. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what struck me watching it now is how prophetic it was in terms of the themes and ideas. Because at the time, this was science fiction in a lot of ways, right? The, all the stuff about the military drones and mm. and even the, the VR stuff, like all that was science fiction, like just pure science fiction at the time. Mm. But now it's not at all science fiction. Mm. Now it's just the way it is. And so it's a little bit weird watching it because you're like, well, in 1992, you know, the military didn't fly drones <laughs> in other countries yeah. and, yeah. you know, use video screens to do so. And they didn't recruit uh, with video games. And they didn't, you know, actively recruit video gamers to fly these drones, which is all things that they do now, mm. at least in the United States. And so this was supposed to be a sort of satire, right? It's supposed to be like a Dr. Strangelove kind of thing in terms of the military aspect. Yeah. But now we look at it and go, well, they were right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it predated the first test flight of a Predator drone by two years, I remember reading. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we didn't use them in the United States until... 2001 regularly. So, right. I mean, we had used them as sort of as uh, in the Iraq war, they were used as, um, as surveillance, but they were huge, yeah. you know, things. Yeah, yeah. 1992 seems like a curious time to come up with something that appears to be a certainly anti-war, but more along the lines of warning about the military industrial complex again, mm -hmm. because, you know, 1992, we're about to enter into the era of Clinton. It's sort of post-Gulf War, at least. And, and everything just seems to be on a, you know, a almost ennui level of niceness and blandness. And there doesn't seem to be much to be terribly worried about until the early 2000s. So it just, it feels like odd timing for this kind of movie. I'm used to this kind of movie emerging during times of great social strife, mm. nervous times, you know. And because it is so primary coloured and striking in terms of its production design and in terms of its general tone, 
I think Barry Levinson described it as a dark comedy in primary colours. Yes. It's an odd combination and it's odd timing, I think, really, for the fable that it's telling and the warning that it's giving us. Yeah, I mean, I, I read that he'd been working on it for about 10 years. Mm. I think in the United States especially, there is a very strong anti-war movement. Um, and, you know, there's no shortage of U.S. military incursions to be <laughs> yeah. uh, against. And so, you know, it happens every, you know, there's especially in in the 80s under Reagan and and then Bush senior you know you had invasions in Panama you had invasions in Guam you had you had all kinds of um, stuff going on in the Middle East and then of course the first Iraq war and so the United States is sort of this perpetual state of warfare and so it sort of it makes sense to me I think a little bit more you know it's not a mainstream opposition to war in general but there there certainly are pockets of it it's rare to see Hollywood do it yeah but I think it's sort of inspired by that sort of perpetual state of sort of low-level warfare the United States had been involved in throughout the 80s and early 90s. Yeah, yeah I agree. And and the fact that it did take 10 years of him developing this movie <laughs> and, and constantly getting turned down by studios, you know, it's, it's something that he probably uh, envisioned at the time of political unrest and yeah. you know, by the time it got actually made as the passion project that it was. Because, yeah. I mean, compared to his other films, this is very strange. <laughs> it's very weird. I mean, it's the kind of movie that you can only make if you've made a whole bunch of really successful, critically acclaimed films for the studio, and then they finally say, sure, yeah, you can make one weird one. Yeah. You yeah. Know, I feel like it's 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 that one, you know? It's, yeah. It's like every band ever as well. You know, they make the hits, and then they make the weird album yeah. with the strange time signatures and using, like, kazoos and... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and um, the sounds of <laughs> dogs barking or something. <laughs> I can't imagine this film being made now. It has like a $50 million budget. Wow. And at one point it occupied every stage on the Fox lot. Wow. Yeah, I mean, watching it, I was struck by the fact that this is, there's no CGI here, I don't think. Mm. I mean, this is all practical effects. I mean, they built all of that stuff and had it move. Yeah. Mm. That's so expensive, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, even the toys themselves. That's a lot of toys mm. that they had to make. And the sets, they're pretty incredible, like the factory floor with the giant characters that all the toys are spilling out of. Yeah. It's not as big as it appears on screen because halfway along it there is a mirror. And oh, if you look carefully, you can see that I think there are four things and then they repeat again. Oh. But still, it's a huge set, so impressive visually. Yeah, and I can't believe that it didn't win for production design at the Academy Awards either. Because mm. it seems like that's the one thing. I mean, you watch the film and there are just these beautiful vistas and interiors. They're kind of breathtaking. And the camera is allowed to linger on them much longer than you would expect. Mm. And so you really get a chance to see them. I mean, there's a scene where there's sort of like this interior within an interior, and uh, the Joan Cusack character is sleeping in this giant swan that kind of like yeah. is a mechanical bed. It's it's And it lights up and everything. It's like a coffin. <laughs> That's how I imagined it. Yeah, it's, just, it's yeah. Yeah. It's incredible, and and you, it's only for one scene, and you never see it again. Yeah, like all of that art direction and production design for that tiny scene, <laughs> phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that I, I can't imagine you know anyone funding a movie like this ever again. <laughs> but it got to a point where it was distracting. Like it was actually making the plot meaningless. Mm. Every single scene, there was something in it that I thought, why is that like this? Like, wh what? Like, even <laughs> when they go into the office uh, and the stairs are on wheels that have to roll to the door. And then it's like, what? why? And then the grandfather who is in an army tent yes. in the room. Why? <laughs> because it's inspired by surrealism and Dadaism. And if you're asking why, then they've won, you see. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I kind of came to as a conclusion because it was just like absurdity for the sake of absurdity like you weren't supposed to understand it but it was as a movie i don't know whether that works yeah well it's self-contained though because the entire world is a fable it's not as though the audience has an audience identification figure who stood looking at all this insanity saying this is insane 
because even the general, who's yeah. certainly an outsider being introduced to a world that he doesn't agree with, but he also comes from an absurdist version of yeah. the military life as well, especially LL Cool J and his uh, obsession with <laughs> camouflaging himself even as a sofa. It's uniformly absurd it and extreme. So it's a piece, it's a self-contained fable in that way, it reminds me very much of Edward Scissorhands coming out in 1990, which in itself, the suburbia that Tim Burton created there is just as absurd as the Gothic castle that's just sort of up the hill. Yeah. Yeah, but with Edward Scissorhands, you have a point of reference. It's obviously satire of something that's familiar. Mm. With toys, it's satire of something that no one's ever seen. I don't know. I feel no connection to it. And I just felt really dissociated from all the characters mm. like I couldn't latch on yeah I, I feel like in watching it this time I was struck by how similar at least the military parts are the absurdity of the military parts um, which are absurd in a different way than the toy factory is mm. it reminded me a lot of Dr. Strangelove right yes you know we're gonna take this sort of military characters we're gonna make them into these bizarre absurd caricatures in an over-the-top way that then reveals how twisted their worldview is. And I thought that some of those scenes worked, I think, the best, right? Where you have the general in his office, you know, trying to shoot the fly with a gun. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, and then he kind of shoots his foot. It's very Peter Sellers in a lot of ways. Yes, I thought that. Sure. Um, and then, you know, the, the general gets more and more absurd as well. He sort of gets folded into this sort of toy factory and his uniform's you know, change another brightly colored camo with like yeah. yellow and almost like Lego <laughs> colors. Yeah, um, he assimilates, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, um, and I actually kind of you know it's it was weird, <laughs> but I liked the tent inside the house with the grandfather figure. It was also very weird. And then, the, you know, the last scene where the general ends up in that tent with his father and they're saluting these little army men that go on this conveyor belt. Yeah. All of it, I think, I think that stuff will work really well as a sort of an absurdist portrait of the military. Mm, yeah, right. sure. I mean, the one thing that interests me about that is I was trying to spot a pattern and the best that I could come up with is that although Leslie and Alsatia, the Zevo kids... They live in a world where you frequently have these spaces within spaces. So Alsatia's bedroom is like a set inside a larger room. Mm -hmm. And also Alsatia works inside like a doll's house where she sort of tries on the clothes for the dolls herself. The clip-on clip clothes, clothes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but again, it's a box inside another box. The, the thing that I noticed is that Leslie and Alsatia are, are never pretending to be something that they're not. They are playing inside these sets, inside sets, but they're always just a reflection of the larger thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas the old general is inside a World War II military tent inside an opulent mansion. So he's pretending to capture something that he no longer is. Oh. It seemed to me that, you know, one set of characters is more authentic, whereas the others are self-delusional or right. egotistical in some way. That was the best I could come up with. <laughs> I'm impressed, Conrad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's on point. I mean, it certainly um, draws a distinction between sort of the whimsical, childish sort of absurdity of the Zevo kids and on the other hand, the sort of dangerous absurdity of the military. Yeah, yeah for sure. And it's interesting with Alsatia too, because she's actually showing you her authentic self in a way that you might not suspect until you watch the film a second time, because all the way through the film, she's been dropping these massive hints of exactly what she is. Mm -hmm. And I did not pick up on it. I was shocked right. in the third act reveal. Yeah. <laughs> the first time I saw it, I was as well. Yeah. But watching it the second time, I was like, oh, oh, I see. <laughs> uh, okay, that makes sense. I, I, I thought it was just weird for being weird. Yeah. Actually, no, there's this other layer here. What's the specific points? What, in terms of her giving away mm. who she is? I mean, spoilers, we always assume if you get to this part of the discussion that you've watched the movie. <laughs> so she is actually a toy herself. She's not a real human being. Mm. So she's in a doll's house, dressed as a doll, designing dolls, things. Oh, she's yes. eating a sandwich with nothing in it. The general says that doesn't seem very nutritional. And LL Cool J says, well, it seems to be working for her because she never gets any older. Oh, she never gets There's any just like older, all the yes. way through the movie, she makes it very, very plain who she is. Right. And uh, 
I did not pick up on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could say maybe the the Swan bid is like a, a charging station. It could know. well be. Yeah. It's surprising that Robin Williams isn't the craziest character in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And can I say something quite daring and see how strongly you react to it? He's not funny in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do feel like this movie has a tone and a vision artistically, like visually, but I don't think it has a direction in any of the characters, really. And so I, I just felt like Robin was just riffing yeah. all the time and they just let it happen. I don't know. Robin Williams just seemed to be Robin Williams in this movie. It didn't, he wasn't a clear character to me. Yeah. You know, it was odd to watch it now and then to go back and look at the timeline because it seems like this is a reminiscent of Aladdin, right? His, his genie character, yes. which is just sort of like a manic mile a minute sort of a stand up routine kind of thing. Yeah. Which is what, you know, Robin Williams was originally famous for. It seems like it's sort of riffing on that, except that that movie was in production at the same time and had come out a month earlier. So it's not referencing that. It's much more a reference to his character in Good Morning Vietnam, I think. Sure, yeah. sure. Now we sort of think of Robin Williams as a character who does that kind of thing in film. But he did hadn't really done that stuff in film other than Good Morning Vietnam um, up until that point. Because, again, this is 92. You know, it probably felt like a daring move for them to just have him ad lib and improvise mm. on set. But it doesn't really work here. Um, I felt like the gags that he does go on too long, like it could have been heavily edited. Mm. The things that work the best for me are when he just sort of does one sort of offhand joke or very sort of subtle and works it in. It feels natural. Like there's one where they're walking through the set of New York and he kind of makes this little joke about being a parade blimp, you know? Yeah, It's sure. quick, and it kind of, like, folds into the dialogue, and it doesn't distract. And I thought that worked really well. It's sort of when he's reined in, it works. But when he's just allowed to do whatever, like with the deviled eggs, that thing where he's moving them around, yeah. it goes on for way oh, too long. Fast, it's not bro. funny. Yeah. I don't understand why it's in there at all. I mean, I'm sure they thought it was hilarious uh, on set, but it, it's weird. Yeah. Every time Robin Williams would walk on the scene with some weird-ass contraption, like the smoking jacket or the, uh -huh. the jacket that kept making noises, it's just like, okay, this, yeah. yeah, I get the joke. Why is this still going on? Yeah, and it's not even that <laughs> funny. It's kind of dad jokes. It's <laughs> and some of it is so metatextual. It's so much Robin Williams on a set commenting on the set or on the costumes. It's sort of observational stuff that doesn't come from the character. So it takes me out of the movie and makes me worry about him. You kind of start to worry, oh, actually, is he really this childlike and innocent or is he actually creepy? Yeah. Because I don't trust him anymore. There's this weird scene where he's like being cute and strange and childish and he suddenly has this little, little devil puppet and he's like, I want to get laid, right? It's yeah. very weird. That whole thing with Robin Wright's <laughs> character, Gwen, being hired by Leslie's father, I think it's fairly strongly intimated that it was deliberately so that she would yeah. meet and fall in love with or for Leslie to fall in love with her, which is a little bit awkward. A little bit awkward, a little bit creepy. Mm -hmm. Another character that's also creepy in the way that it's written is the nurse character that takes care of the general. Oh, yeah, that was yeah. cringe. That was very cringe. Mm. Yeah, those moments sort of break the tone mm. for me in, in, a, in a way that I think hurts the, the overall film. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And you're right. I feel like there needed to be more room for him to be just serious, I guess. In the 90s, there were two actors that did their thing, and that's what they were. Like um, Ron Williams and Jim Carrey. Mm. And some of those movies where they were given completely free reign, they're just like, oh, that's just Jim Carrey being Jim Carrey. Like Ace Ventura, The Mask, Liar Liar. It's just like, yeah, he went all out. But the sort of movies later when, when they were more serious, there was a lot more heart and there's a lot more to hold on to as an emotional character. But with toys, even though there were sort of heartfelt moments, it felt kind of forced to me. Yeah, I mean, that was a thing that we didn't see as much. That, that sort of like, okay, we're going to have a movie, we're going to loosely write it, and then we're just going to have a funny guy come in and ad-lib, just mm. do lots of improv, right? That wasn't a thing that we saw very much. 
now we see it all the time, right? So it's every movie with Will Ferrell, yeah. right? Whatever. Yeah. It's sort of a way of making a movie now, right? Mm. But at the time, I think it wasn't as much. I mean, Jim Carrey was probably the exception and some Robin Williams. But both of them are actually very good actors when they're put in a role where they have to rein it in. Mm. Will Ferrell is too. I mean, Stranger Than Fiction yes. is a great movie where he reins it in and it works really well. Yeah. Yes. One actor that did surprise me, LL Cool J. I don't know how many films he'd been in up until this point, but he fits into the tone of this movie. He seems to intuit the world he should be in and how he should be behaving really well. And he's really funny. Yeah. It's some of the best parts, yeah, of the film is, is him. I mean, that scene where he, like, folds himself out of the couch and he's, like, wearing a couch cushion and he's been, like, listening on their conversation is just brilliant. And there's yeah. another scene where he's, you know, he just stops the car and, like, runs into the, into the wheat field. And it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Somehow it works. And I'm not entirely sure why, but it, it does. And, and he's very good at it. Yeah. And I'm always very impressed when somebody who's just starting out in their Hollywood career is not afraid to do something that questions representations of masculinity as much as that. I mean, your entrance into the movie is wearing a floral sofa with a cushion for a backpack and you're a rap star. It shows a lot of courage and good humour, I think. Yeah, and I think his character probably has the most clear arc. Yeah. He changes, it right? Does. I mean, he starts off as the son of a military man who's in the military and he's all for it. And then he really has the growth. I mean, he has this sort of kind streak, right? He's very concerned about his family and his the people around him. And he eventually drops the military pretense and sides with humanity, you know, mm. which I, I felt was very compelling. Yeah. Mm. Also, just a quick side note, Jamie Foxx is in this movie as well. He is, <laughs> yeah. The tiniest character. <laughs> I think this is his first movie ever. I think this is the first time he's in a movie, is this one. Yeah. yeah. And he's very good as well, actually. He's in a couple of scenes and he's funny in both. It's good to see him mm. looking very young. <laughs> yes, he looks like he should still be in high school. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, the women in the movie... Yeah. Not given much to work with. Mm. One's a manic pixie dream girl and the other one is a manic pixie robot girl. Well, I mean... It's not great. Not too manic, though. I mean, side by side with Robin Williams, it's hard to be the manic pixie dream girl. Yeah, well, I think Joan Cusack. I mean, a lot of people have pointed out that Lawrence LaBeouf's role as Apple in Turbo Kid is very oddly reminiscent of Joan Cusack's oh. role as Alsatia. And they're both robots as well. And they're both robots. Yeah, right. And Robin Wright as Gwen... You think that she might be, again, the audience identification figure, but then halfway through the diner scene when he makes some joke about is your tuna sandwich dolphin friendly, she just makes a dolphin noise and walks off and you think, yeah. okay, yeah. so she's just fully assimilated into this world as well. <laughs> so. yeah. yeah, she, you know, the women are there to sort of support the men, to be love interest, to sort of offer... In Joe Cusack, spouts wisdom, mm. sort of childish wisdom. And they're, they're not fully realized characters. I mean, I was having fun imagining what this movie would be like if Robin Williams just wasn't in it. Right. I think it would be a better movie. I, th I think that the two women could be the stars, you know. And I think it would be a very different film, and I think it would work better. So I think, you know, as much as I like Robin Williams, I think he kind of distracts from what's going on. And then you have these other, like you're saying, the, the female characters are just sort of there to support these guys in their quest in various ways. Yeah, I mean, even if you pick out the climax scene, Robin Wright and Joan Cusack are just kind of left behind. Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> they're not even given anything to do in that toy scene. No, at least they don't have to get rescued. That's true. <laughs> Michael Gambon is quite a surprise. Yeah, Dumbledore. Yeah, yeah. Dumbledore play, the playing <laughs> the American general who unfortunately can't shake his British accent. <laughs> oh, that's the strangest scene. Well, I don't understand why they try to explain it. Like, of all the things in the movie that they have to, like, explain in dialogue, dialogue. Why that? Like, just roll with it. I mean, LL Cool J is your son and we're totally fine with it. Yes. I, I don't understand. It doesn't, <laughs> this is a movie that's supposed to be absurd. Just let him have his accent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now it's time for Random Trivia. So Dan, what fascinating piece of trivia did you discover in a barrel of laughs today? Well, this piece of trivia 
Uh, I didn't actually read on Wikipedia or IMDb for <laughs> once. I, I, I noticed it myself. Ooh. And there is a actress in this movie, and she's a very small character, uh, side character. She's one of the researchers, the toy researchers. Oh and I did notice her sort of facial features. She has quite sort of a mousy face. Her name is Yeardley Smith. Oh, and yes. she is most famous for being the voice of Lisa Simpson. That's and I right, didn't yes. realize that she was even in this movie uh, until I looked her up in the, in the cast. So, yes, Lisa Simpson is one of the research. <laughs> <laughs> she is, yeah. Not a very big part, though. She oh, barely says tiny, a word. Tiny, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> and that's our trivia. I would like to talk about the themes of this film. Like, there's obviously the sort of anti-military theme, but there's also the theme of innocence versus corruption of innocence. So the toys are innocence, but the video games is corruption and losing your sense of purity, I guess. But I, I felt like maybe they could have had more kids in the movie, like an actual child character oh, right. so you yeah. kind of saw the difference because for a movie called toys there's a lack of kids yeah in fact the only kids in the movie are the adult children who run the company or work at the company and then there's the kids playing the video games in the simulation of of, of war yes uh, and that's pretty much it yeah i think in the uh, other than the, there's the kids dancing in the uh, in the opening but the strange christmas scene yeah uh, at the start which is also very weird it cuts to at the end yeah it's very jarring the end for me how it cuts back to the christmas scene yeah i think it's trying to give you the sense that the events of the movie have taken place over a year and that peace has been restored in time for the next christmas yeah but it looks like off cuts from the edit of the first scene just suddenly slapped together and jammed at the end of the movie to try and make it feel a bit happier yeah when it isn't yeah it felt like maybe they didn't want to end on general zevo getting <laughs> killed <Yeah. laughs> potentially getting killed so that you know they had the, the nice christmas happy everything's fine scene at the end yeah but none of the characters that you've introduced throughout the film are in that scene so it's just like oh we're looking at this again yeah not sure why <laughs> yeah and then after that they go back to the grave and they have the final scene with the children or the you know the, the adult children yeah mm. and that's the actual end of the movie so yeah there is this weird christmas thing in the middle Mm. And it was released at Christmas, the movie. Ah, do you think reshoots then? Well, just tacked on. no, I don't. I don't think so. I think it was imagined as a festive movie. It just, <laughs> oh, okay, just, yeah, not not particularly festive. I mean, I do think the use of the toys in the movie as a way of visualizing the corruption of innocence and imagination, I do think it works quite well. I mean, oddly enough, the final battle scene, although it includes a few lazy techniques that I don't like, like step printing instead of genuine slow motion. It feels like something that's been right. hacked about a bit to make it look a bit more exciting than the footage ended up being, despite their best efforts. It's nauseating. Yeah, it. some of it. <laughs> some of blur. It. Yeah, but there are a few things in it that I did find quite emotive, like the scene where it's sort of a half-blown-up bear is sort of embraced by another bear and you get these horrible pained toy bear noises on the soundtrack and Hans Zimmer's doing his best to <laughs> yeah. sort of wheel in the pathos and I thought actually I'm finding this bizarrely disturbing and touching. <laughs> yeah I have I have a note about exactly that same moment yeah. Um, where yeah the sort of the one bear is sort of comforting the other bear whose head has been blown off and it's, it's very dark but also kind of yeah it's you're like oh I'm feeling something here yeah and most of the time with the toys it's just kind of oh, that's an old toy. But in those, there's a couple moments where you're like, oh, that kind of gets me. That kind of works, um, surprisingly. Mm. Yeah, it does. It's like the toy that's a child with its arms upraised and its eyes wide in horror. Actually, because the toy itself has like a toy dog biting its bottom, but because you primarily focus on the child end of the toy and it slowly works its way out of the building until the last time you see it, it's sort of escaping the factory and just rolling down the hill, still waving its arms and screaming. It's kind of reminiscent of war photography mm -hmm. of children fleeing terrible scenes of destruction. And so it's, again, weirdly disturbing and quite upsetting. I didn't find that. I found it like completely, totally wrong. Really? Because it just looked... <laughs> 
hilarious to me seeing this child with the dog biting its <laughs> It is funny as well. It's an odd... It, I think that's kind of the sweet spot for what the movie wanted to be. It's kind of cute, it's kind of funny, but it's also quite loaded. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that one scene where you first see you know, what the general has been working on. And you have this little doll pushing a baby carriage and there's a baby in the carriage. And it looks like all the other 1920s inspired toys or whatever. Mm-hmm. And and suddenly the bottle raises and it's a machine gun, right? And you're like, ah, this is actually quite twisted. Yeah. Right? That he's turning these innocent looking toys, but they're sort of hidden weapons of mass destruction, right? And it's evocative of... You know, the problem with landmines that look like toys and, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff that's been, you know, made in, in the real world that's horrific. And obviously this is an absurd version of that. And I felt like that worked. And then, you know, there's a scene where LL Cool J is in the hallway and he's sort of surrounded by these two completely innocent toys. One of them's like a bouncing ball and one of them's like a little dolly. Mm. And he's like terrified, right? And we're like, what? And then they, you know, they both have, have weapons, so that sort of makes sense. It's sort of these toys that look innocent but are actually deadly. Um, but then you've got like the tanks and the helicopters, which are also – it's not the, quite the same thing, right? They're, it felt like they should have either been really scary or they should have been innocent looking but deadly. Mm-hmm. And it felt like they were kind of in between maybe. Yeah, yeah. I think the movie would have worked better if they had more serious tones to the film in terms of the anti-military theme, like maybe General Zevo as a completely straight bad guy, military guy would have worked better rather than this whimsical, multicolored, shooting his foot guy. And the same with the military toys, like maybe it would have worked better if they just looked like actual small tanks. Or yeah. if they even just look like G.I. Joe almost. I mean... Exactly. Like yeah. the toy aspect is okay. I think... It's interesting to me because I actually liked the General Zevo character a lot. I wasn't expecting to the second time I watched it, but there's a scene where he is sort of passionately giving this speech to his son about his vision. And he's they're both in the field. It's at night. There's like a campfire. And he's like running around. And he's talking about the military and how it needs to be miniaturized and how we can... It's mm, all about this sort of yeah. cost-benefit analysis of small planes and military using video game technology. And it's supposed to be this over-the-top satire, in the, again, in the vein of Dr. Strangelove. Sure, and I think yeah. it really works. And I think it actually works better now than it did then because almost everything he's saying actually happened. Right. The yes. United States military does primarily fight its wars with drones. There's some 18-year-old kid sitting in a bunker in Kansas who's controlling the drone in Afghanistan Right. Yes. with a video game interface, essentially. Um, so that's real. Um, it wasn't then, but it is now. And you have the U.S. military actively recruiting video game players, I mean gamers, through a whole bunch of stuff. They have a very popular Twitch channel which is run by the U.S. Army, and it's a recruiting tool. They have a YouTube channel, obviously, that is very popular that, you know, this is not a conspiracy, right? They they say what they're doing on their YouTube channel. Like, you can go watch their videos and see them recruiting children with video games. Like, it's not... Wow. This is is not me, like, (laughs) extrapolating. This is what they say they're doing. Wow. And they're quite proud of it. Oh, my gosh. They have this 18-wheeler transformer almost that like it's an 18 wheeler with the US military you know logos on it and it transforms into a mobile gaming lab and then you, you know, they, they they park it at all these events and then kids get on and they they have playstations and xboxes and pcs in there and then you can just play you know you can play street fighter and you can play call of duty and you know, all, and all this stuff <laughs> and then they have the the professional esports military team who are soldiers who have been enlisted to play video games to recruit kids Right. That's what's happening, you know, right now in reality. Yeah. Right? And so when you hear in the movie, you know, he's got this crazy vision that's supposed to be satire, and yet it's real now. It strikes a different tone. It's now it's it hits a lot harder. Mm, sure. Now. Wow. That, I had no idea. My mind. I, I did not know this. No. I knew that they were involved in propaganda through movies. So, for example, Top Gun, I think, is yes. the example that's often cited. Oh, right. And yes. many of the Marvel movies, the Department of Defense has a whole wing that just deals with essentially propaganda in U.S. movies and in Hollywood movies. And so um, they often do cross-promotion, uh, which I guess you wouldn't, you wouldn't see that um, 
outside of the United States, but, you know, like uh, X-Men First Class, uh, they had a whole cross-promotional thing where they had these ads on TV that were half an ad for the movie and half an ad for the U.S. military. Oh my and the God. idea was that, you know, like, you could be like the X-Men by joining the army. I mean, essentially in those words. What? <laughs> yeah, and then Captain Marvel was another one that they really pushed hard, and they did this whole, like, feminism empowerment kind of thing, but, you know, how you get that is by joining the Air Force. Oh, and so, uh, and, and of course, to get these sort of cross-promotional deals and to get all the benefits from having the DOD, you know, the Department of Defense, work on your film is that they give you access to their equipment and they give you access to their locations and they give you access to their soldiers as extras, right? All free of cost. And so a lot of these big budget movies that have, you know, big military stuff in them, you know, you probably couldn't do it, you know, without Mm -hmm. the, you know, using all of this stuff. So not only do you get to use it, you get to use it for free or cheap. And then the only thing that the Department of Defense uh, asks for in return is final script approval. They get to say or veto what's in the film, Mm. right, and how the military is portrayed. And so that's, you know, why a lot of movies, there's a very bizarre, out-of-nowhere stuff where the U.S. military is portrayed as good, even if there's some bad military thing happening, the actual army is good, right? So one of my favorite, and I say that facetiously, is at Jurassic Park 3, where they're just suddenly saved by the Marines, yeah. And they're all like, oh, my God, it's the Marines. Thank right. you, Marines. Yes. It's yeah. like, what? <laughs> That's my ultimate cop-out of any ending to a movie. The army arrives. We're saved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Happens at the end of The Mist as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Almost every zombie movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lots of things. Yeah. <laughs> Except 28 Days Later when, oh, wow, it's the army. Oh, dear. Right. <laughs> that, that, that one did not get script approval, I'm sure. I'm sure it didn't. No. <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. All right, listeners, Mobley Awards time. It's where we present our favourite clip-on clothes parts of the film in a number of utterly whimsical categories. Best quote. I still really like that scene with LL Cool J where he's talking about, uh, you know, building a little fortress around his mashed potatoes <laughs> yeah. and he doesn't like his food invading other foods. I mean, there's a lot of really charming moments like that that really work for me. Uh, and Robin Williams doesn't deliver any of those lines. No, he doesn't. No. The line I wrote down was, I want my string beans to be quarantined. <laughs> right, right, <yeah. laughs> Which I really liked. Right, yeah. I mean, speaking of food, my favorite quote was from uh, Joan Cusack's character, Alsatia. Uh, when they're sort of <laughs> running through the corridors and the, the, the flashing lights start um, happening, Robin Williams asks, uh, what, what do the red flashing lights mean? And then she replies, red normally means caution or beef if it's a bouillon <laughs> cube. And it's just, it's so strange, random, in, in such a sort of perilous situation that they're in. It's, uh, yeah, it was funny. She's able to deliver some great lines. I mean, even ones that don't seem like they would work, like um, after the little baby, you know, bottle machine gun thing, she kind of turns and says, that's a very bad baby. And it works. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Best hair or costume. Well, I'll go first and and say that it is Alsatia yet again. I do love her plastic Lego hair Uh, pieces and uh, her doll's clothes that have got the white tabs on the shoulders. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just, it's just a lovely little detail. And again, it's just telegraphing what she is, but you don't pick up on it. (laughs) Right, yes, yes. Was there any costume or hair that stuck out to you? I mean, I I would definitely say that it was uh, LL Cool J's disguises. Uh, uh, <laughs> were, were, uh, I mean, this is this is top-notch movie making in my opinion. You know, so the one where he where he he's wearing the couch. You know, he's sort of camouflaged in the cushions was, is great. There's another one where he's like, it's a totally red room and he's speaking, but they can't find him because he's the same color of red. Um, and then Joan Cusack has this sort of like offhand comment, which you kind of hear in the background, where she says, "That's a really hard color to match." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes. 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 It's funny because that gag is is still being pulled off now in modern films. Like, I I recently watched the Johnny English movie, like the third one, and he does the disguise gag where he's painted exactly the same as, like, the wall. Most 90s moment. The only thing I could pick out was just the absurd comedy 
that doesn't really exist anymore. And it was very sort of prevalent in the 90s. Like just a, a premise that you think doesn't work and they just run with it. So I've got a few, <laughs> a list of a few like 90s movies that did that. So Ace Ventura, uh, Dumb and Dumber, um, Coneheads, Junior, The Nutty Professor, Biodome, just like crazy characters, crazy concepts that shouldn't work, but they, they do it anyway. And this kind of falls into that category as well. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, any 90s from you guys? Um, for me, I was going to say LL Cool J. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just because this was kind of the height of his fame, I think. I mean, I, we've come across him before on the podcast talking about uh, Halloween H2O ah, yes. in 98. And of course, he was in Deep Blue Sea in 99. So yeah, that was my pick. <laughs> um, I, I think I would say the music uh, was very ah. 90s. Um, You've you've yeah, got Tori you've got Amos. Tori Amos. Uh, you've got Enya is in there. Oh yes. And then you have that sort of music video that sort of plays a part in the plot, where they make like a fake MTV video, and it sounds to me like the Talking Heads. It does yes, hundred percent. Um, but it isn't actually the Talking Heads. I looked it up, and it is the guy who did "She Blinded Me with Science." Yes, Thomas Dolby. Who did oh. that song? Yeah. Yeah, and the soundtrack is is Hans Zimmer at his most sort of Vangelisy. It's that sort of synthy, mm -hmm. very synthy period of his. But also working with Trevor Horn, who's probably the uh, producer who defined the eighties. Right. So, uh, video killed the radio star. Is that? Yeah, Frankie goes to Hollywood. Dollar and one of my favorite albums, ABC's uh, Lexicon of Love, all Trevor Horn productions and quite distinctive. Mm. Did the score feel distinctive to you, Conrad? Yeah, it, it does. It's, it's an odd co-production and it is cohesive as a whole. You can tell that it's Hans Zimmer and Trevor Horn, not a pairing I would have put together, but you can hear it. And uh, all the songs are in, you know, of a piece. They are all in the same style. Right. Favorite scene. I do really like the scene where the general and his son are sitting at the campfire, and and he goes on this rant about what he wants the military to be in a sort of crazed, manic way. And I, th I think it really works. I mean, again, it's got that Peter Sellers kind of vibe to it, and I think it really lands. I mean, you really kind of get that this guy is unhinged, but the things he's describing are actually happening today in 2021. So. Um, for me, that was that was that worked really really well. Mm, yeah, mm, it does. Right, right, right. I love the way that fireworks go off behind him when he's finishing, and it's like, where, how, why is this happening? <laughs> there is a little, there's a little line that you can barely hear, and I had to turn the subtitles on to see it. There's sort of a muffled. And it's like this is why you always carry a flare. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> What about you, Dan? Yeah, my favorite scene wasn't so heartfelt, but it was the kind of the funniest scene for me was the uh, we haven't talked about it, but the shrinking room. Oh, that's mine yes. too. Yes, <laughs> completely nonsensical, and I I know they're sort of portraying something that is I guess happening, but metaphorically happening at the same time. They're in this room. They're they're all discussing the fake vomit and, and different sort of <laughs> aspects of what they should be adding and. They should be aiming towards the, the Asian market, like this is too Anglo vomit, or uh, <laughs> yeah, different that. types of food that they should be putting in. It's it's hilarious, and and while they they're having this hilarious discussion, the room is just getting smaller and smaller <laughs> as these uh, parts of it move in, like a like almost like Tetris. Yes. Yeah, I mean, Robin Williams does one of his uh, offhand jokes about, oh, we're being attacked by a crossword puzzle, which, right, yeah, again, doesn't quite work because it's too metatextual, it but it's, I, it, wor it's, it works, works better yeah. than the than the others. But yeah, no, I do love the bit where the yeah the Asian member of the of the team says this this is obviously the vomit of a white man. <laughs> <laughs> Most cliche fantasy moment. It's kind of tricky, isn't it? Because we usually we go by genre, and the closest one this is to the genres we cover is fantasy. Mm. But I, I didn't see that much by way of a, a fantasy movie cliche in here. I, I could only come up with a movie cliche. This movie, for the most part, is wholesome. And wholesome movies, the bad guy doesn't die. Even right. though he is attacked by some creature that we never see, the, the <laughs> sea swine. Um, yeah, he doesn't die at the end. No. Uh, which is, you know... It's wholesome. It is, yeah. No death. Yeah. The only thing I could think of was what's called as Ghibli Hills, I believe. 
so the green rolling hills and the blue blue skies i tend to think of it as a windows xp desktop but it is um right but not necessarily a fantasy cliche so to speak but there we go yeah when when was windows first released xp was 2001 so actually it predates and possibly inspired windows xp's famous desktop there you go (laughs) i did look that up because i did wonder myself yeah october 2001 Mm. best special effect my favorite effect was the uh, zevo mansion which i couldn't figure out Ah. because they were saying so much of it was practical and i thought surely that's a model Surely it's a miniature, the uh, the pop-up book that folds down. I think it, has it is. To be. Okay. I, I, it looks like it, yeah. yeah. I love that as well, actually. It yeah. just It's just something I've never seen before. Yeah, it's so bizarre. It's great. Completely convincing, though. Yeah, it is. And uh, especially uh, the scene after is of a dollhouse and, and um, Joan reaching into it. It's like, oh, wow, I thought that was real. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. It's really clever. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of mm. that is really nice. I, I, I love that dollhouse scene where, you, where they pan back and they have a miniature room within the room. You know, it's the same room, but in miniature, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that's really nice. Um, I actually do did like the cafeteria, and, and, and there's, a, there's a sort of a mirror scene that comes later where, where the cafeteria closes in like the little room oh, did. Oh, yeah. And, and everybody gets squashed together. Um, and it's supposed to be this sort of tragic oh, moment, yes. you know, but and everyone's squished and they're getting up on tables and they're trying to get away. So you know, the room is actually shrinking. It's getting smaller and the, and the actors are trying to get away from the furniture. Yeah, physically, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a feat of engineering that. Oh, yes, for sure. Yeah. Huge moving set. Yeah. Favorite sound effect. The obvious choice would be the, the jacket that plays sound effects. Um, but but, it, but it's so overdone and so annoying that that it, it, <laughs> yes. it's I disqualified. I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's kind of like um, the Three Stooges kind of humor. It's like mm. okay, we get it. It makes noise. <laughs> it, it's too obvious. Um, but right at the start, there is a slinky that comes down the stairs mm. that they walk up the rolling stairs, uh, and it has a really cool sound. A really sort of slick metally rattly sound that i've quite liked mm-hmm. yeah my favorite was the um right at the very beginning of the film and just as the logos are coming up you can hear somebody winding up a, a toy and i just thought oh, that yeah. was a, a wonderful way to start nice the movie touch. like yeah some something bright and colorful is about to be unleashed upon you um <laughs> i thought that was for two hours for two hours yeah <laughs> be prepared <laughs> yeah so that was mine how about you, Jonathan? I think the sound of some of the toys is actually quite good. I mean, a lot of the, the toy sounds uh, throughout the film, I think, I think work really well. You've got, you know, like you've got that wind up that you mentioned. It added a lot, lot lots of mechanical twists and gears whirring and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, and I guess a sense of nostalgia as well for people that own toys like that. Yeah. Most funniest moment. Mine, as we've mentioned, it, the, the scene where the general is trying to explain to us why he hasn't got four stars <laughs> because of his gosh darn it accent, his English accent, and he went to dialect school and 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 then he starts talking in the worst impression of an American accent I have ever heard. Uh, he starts just talking out his nose, pretty much like talking like this. Like it's what? so bad. Actually, that's the thing. LL Cool J and Michael Gambon are the funniest things in this movie, mm-hmm. not Robin Williams, yeah. which is a crime. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah, no, that was mine as well, and it was actually, even though it is home of borderline homophobic. It, yeah, his dad, Jack, played by Jack Warden, the fact that he speaks in sort of unintelligible mumbles because he's old makes no sense. But yeah, he, yeah, you do guess, hear yeah. after Michael Gambon says something about one of my men tried to frag me, the old guy just says, "A big cock." Right. But again, it's one of those moments when you think, sorry, who's this movie pitched at again? Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's our Mooblies. Hi, this is Andrew Belling, and you're listening to Movie Oubliette. 
Final verdict time. Should toys be set free on a flying bubble-blowing alabaster stone elephant to be enjoyed by the world, or should it be shot down by toy tanks and plunged into the oubliette to be attacked by a sea swine, never to be talked about again? Jonathan, you've you've presented us with toys. What's your final verdict on toys? Uh, I mean, I think that it is a really interesting film to watch now. I think you got to be prepared <laughs> for what you're going to get. Um, but, I mean, sociologically speaking, I think there's a lot going on that is that is interesting and worthwhile, and some things that, that have not aged well, as we've talked about. Mm. But overall, I, I mean, I, I, I think it left an impact on me as a, as, as a young man, and I think it still has interesting things to say that are actually kind of more interesting now than they were when it was made. Mm. Right. Yeah, right. Uh, I wish I'd seen this movie when it came out, like in the nineties, because the on paper and visually, this is everything I wanted in a movie back in the nineties. I loved the blurring of lines between reality and dream and 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 magical places, and I loved Robin Williams. I think on paper with the themes, yes, they're very compelling. But I don't know as a film. I just felt just perpetually confused throughout every single scene. <laughs> I thought, what? Why is why is that happening? I don't and then they don't refer to it and and they just move on. And yeah, just too much whimsy. I don't know. I I couldn't handle the whimsy, whimsy overload. Whimsy overload. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah, so much whimsy. To the point where I just, yeah, I couldn't connect with any characters. So I don't know. I, I feel conflicted because I, I think my, my kid self would would have loved this movie. But as an adult, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm the same. I wish I'd seen it at the time. But as I didn't, I don't have any kind of nostalgia connection to it at all. And I just look at it and I just find things that, that don't work and don't engage me. I think it's astonishing to look at. I think tonally yes. it's uneven. Visually amazing. It's visually amazing. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And I think the whole cast is is doing their best, but I think Robin is is just criminally unfunny, which is so odd. And as you say, Jonathan, I'd love to see a version of this which didn't have him in it. Because I think it would have been much more interesting. But mm. ultimately I think it did it just left me cold. I mean, if it created if it was a, a modern day fable like Edward Scissorhands that emotionally wound me up as well and, and made me care, then I think I I would have plumped for it. But I think now it just sort of lays there as this kind of inert oddity that can be fascinating to watch and is certainly uh, politically it's very interesting to watch. Yeah. But I'm not sure I'd recommend it to anybody for fun. Yeah, I, I think that it, it's a curiosity in a lot of ways. Um, yes. And I think that if you're interested in themes of militarism or, you know, the way toys are – militarized toys are are produced, I, mean, I think it's it's good to watch. I think from a political point of view, it's good to watch. And from a set design perspective, I mean, you should absolutely watch this if you're interested in set design. Mm-hmm. I think that it would benefit – I mean, like, like we said, I would love to see a, a re-edited version of it. I mean, even if you can't remove Robin Williams, you could edit down – his performance to an acceptable level with some heavy cuts. Sure. Um, so I would love to see a like an hour and a half version of this movie, where a lot of the uh, you know the improv was was mm. removed and, and it, it kept the. Um, I, I don't think it would be great. I, I don't think this is a great film, <laughs> but I think it's a really interesting <laughs> you know uh, film uh, for people who are interested in film, especially. And even even just like actors alone, seeing them portray these types of characters, mm. Princess Bride. Dumbledore and Robin Williams. Like, what could go wrong? Yeah. Toys. (laughs) (laughs) I think on balance in the show, I think we are throwing it back in the oubliette, though. But that's not to say that that invalidates your opinion, Jonathan. (laughs) Yes. I would encourage people to watch it for just the experience of watching something that you've never seen before. Mm. Like, there's nothing like this movie. And it's on Disney Plus in some territories. Well, I at least hope you had a good time with it. I mean, that's... um, Great to discover. I also don't recommend it to friends, unless I know them very well and their interests, and then I might, you know. But I'm not just going to be like, oh, yeah, everyone should watch this movie because... Yes, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, it is something else. All right, I'm going to put it back in. 
Come here. No, not the feast, why? Well, even though we threw toys back into the oubliette, we were very grateful, Jonathan, that you brought it to our attention because we'd never seen it before. And your uh, your comments on it were, as always, very insightful and fascinating. Where can our listeners find more of your insight and fascination? Uh, well, I have a YouTube channel, which is called the Pop Culture Detective Agency, uh, where I post all my uh, my long-form video essays. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I have a Twitter account, which, um, you know, I make sort of offhand comments about about media I'm watching, although sometimes I do really in-depth threads. And I'm at Radical Bytes, Bytes like the computer, mm-hmm. computer bite. Uh, I am currently working on a, I'm watching every Marvel movie, all 23 of them. Oh my. Uh, and I'm, wow. I'm doing a Twitter thread where I comment on every single one of them. And this is basically just my notes made public. And so it's a little bit random. Wow. Um, if you like uh, an analysis of militarism in film or masculinity in film, there's a lot there. And there's, you know, I, I think I'm up to Iron Man 3 now. So I still have like 10 more, 14 more to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds fascinating. And I hope it turns into a video essay because all of them are pure gold. And I thoroughly recommend that everyone check out the uh, pop culture detective agency. Yes. And if you want to check us out, Movie Oubliette, we are that name on all social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. Yes, and become a patron. If you love us that much, (laughs) as little as a dollar a month gets access to all the extended segments from the podcast that are never released mm. on the episode and for five dollars you get access to the minisode our one monthly extra episode yes where we discuss new films yes most recently we looked at the platform marking its one year anniversary because it was released right at the beginning of lockdown in march and uh, yeah it's interesting to look back on it a year later mm, it is it is check it out yeah Become a patron. (laughs) Yes. And if you'd like to rate or review us on your podcast platform, perhaps Apple Podcasts, something else, I don't know what you're listening to us on, but please do give us a star rating and a review if you have time. It really helps us out. Mm. Yes, it does. So, Conrad, what movie are we going to be presented with next episode? Well, it's Patron's Choice. So I guess we ought to uh, spin that uh, oubliette roulette and find out which one they picked. Oubliette roulette. Let's give it a whirl. Ooh. Oh. Ooh. Come on, come on. Oh, wow. It's landed on Maniac Cop. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've not seen this. <laughs> Me neither. So this is a 1988 American slasher film directed by William Lustig, written by Larry Cohen, so writer oh. of the stuff, mm-hmm. starring Tom Atkins, Bruce Campbell, <laughs> ah. Loreen Landon, Richard Roundtree, William Smith, Robert Zadar, and Cherie North. <laughs> okay. Sounds classic 80s horror. Yeah, it really does. This is the kind of thing that really did not appeal to me during the 80s, so I have not seen this. Mm. Slasher. Yeah, and written by Larry Cohen and starring Bruce Campbell, who we have seen as a cop before. <laughs> yes, that's right. Intruder. Blink and you'll miss him in Intruder. I was so disappointed because his name was plastered all over the advertising and he's like not in it at all. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, looking forward to that. That'll be interesting. <laughs> yes. Thank you, patrons, for voting for that. Yes. And thanks, Jonathan, for being such a great guest. It's great to be here. Stay tuned next time, listeners. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs> You men stand over there for my intervention until further notice.